The so-called war on drugs never existed. The idea that there is or has been a war against drugs is a lie, it's classic prohibition propaganda. There has never been a campaign against drugs. Let me explain. Society and governments have always appreciated the wide-ranging benefits and pleasures derived from drugs. Drugs have never been as popular as they are now. The availability, promotion and use of pharmaceutical and legally approved drugs such as caffeine, alcohol, tobacco and sugar, has never been greater. However, prohibition propaganda has conveniently resulted in these drugs escaping under the radar of the prohibitionist drug discourse, and these substances are incorrectly, not perceived as drugs. Rather than a war on drugs, what we have is a drug war, a hostile war waged by the proponents of approved drugs against anyone using unapproved drugs. More accurately, a process better conceptualized as a politically driven drug apartheid, an arbitrary and illogical separation, not of people, but of drugs. This distinction between these two sets of drugs has no rational basis, it has no science or evidence to support it, neither is it based on the risk of harm. Under the strictly enforced drug apartheid alcohol, sugar, tobacco and caffeine enjoy privilege, power and promotion, while unapproved drugs are outlawed and anyone found involved in possession, production or supply risk stigma, criminalization and punishment, including life imprisonment and the death penalty. This brutal, inhumane and damaging system that impacts negatively on individuals, families, communities and nations, is perpetuated because society has been successfully indoctrinated, at a personal, cultural and institutional level, to believe a social construction of drugs. Anyone seeking to expose or challenge the drug apartheid, risks being ridiculed, and is vulnerable to public humiliation, as experienced by Professor David Nutt. The unwarranted and ill-founded attack on David Nutt was no isolated incident. Further, to deter any association with outlaw drugs, armed forces, customs officials, and police invest massive energy and resources, while magistrates and judges impose some of the severest sentences available to the courts for drug violations. Such is the power of the drug apartheid, that a criminal conviction for using the wrong drug results in lifelong consequences for travel, employment, housing, relationship and opportunities. The ever-increasing business opportunities and technologies, spawned from the drug apartheid, drug testing, urine, blood, hair, sweat, saliva, and wastewater, has enabled the oppressive regime to extend beyond law enforcement agencies, to the civil arena, so that surveillance, monitoring and sanctions to maintain the drug apartheid are now carried out by employers, benefit agencies, schools, colleges and even in homes by parents on their children. This untenable and indefensible position, of outlawing some drugs and privileging others, was enshrined in the 1961 UN Single Convention, a law that is rooted in moral and politically ideology from the 1930s, 40s and 50s. The decision to isolate a group of substances was never based upon science, reason or evidence. Yet ironically, since its inception, Drug reformers have tried to end this drug war by engaging ideologically driven politicians, governments and UN bodies with endless streams of evidence, inquiries, research, reports and debates. This considerable drug reform effort, as for five decades, 1960 to 2010, resulted in no significant drug law or policy change by any major advanced Western capitalist country, dash apart from some US state privileging cannabis for entirely different reasons. The vast array of campaigns, reports, Research, presentations, inquiries, reviews, and publications have for decades been consigned to a vacuum, while the increasingly wealthy and all-powerful multinational companies with a vested interest in maintaining the drug apartheid, have worked closely alongside politicians and government agencies, to maintain drug policy inertia through propaganda, procrastination, misinformation and distortion. 
Indeed prohibition benefits many groups and organizations. A recent U.S. opinion poll, the General Social Survey, that explores support for cannabis legalization, indicates that for almost 40 years, 1970-2007, public interest in legalizing cannabis changed little, fluctuating between 16% and 33% during that period. However, in the seven-year period since 2007, support for legalization has risen rapidly from 31% to 52%. How do we make sense of this dramatic shift? One influential contributing factor over this period, has been the global and widespread increased access to the internet, and the mass engagement with social media such as Twitter, Facebook, Scoop.it, LinkedIn and YouTube. Social media provides an alternative source to information, evidence and peer exchange, and has I believe, played a significant part in enabling the wider public to gain access to independent, research-based knowledge and reason, necessary to critically consider and question the basis of the drug policy sham. In particular, the widespread dissemination of research evidence, facts and case stories, such as Charlotte Fiji, about cannabis to the public, has resulted in long overdue, and much-needed calls for decriminalization and legalization, to allow people suffering with life-limiting illnesses, that fail to respond to medicine, to explore possible benefits from cannabis, and sensibly too, to allow recreational use of cannabis. Personal possession of cannabis should never have been outlawed, but neither should personal possession of any substance. Every person should in principle have totally rights over their own body and what they consume without threat of harassment, punishment or incarceration. The risks associated with personal consumption of any substance is a health and social care issue, not a law enforcement issue, if it's an issue at all. The public acceptance of cannabis is a very significant shift, indeed, it could mark the tipping point dash the start of the process that could see the end of the drug apartheid. But let's be clear here, cannabis reform in the US is not occurring because 50 years of research, evidence and debate has finally persuaded politicians the drug war was a mistake, and the politicians are seeking legislative change. No, cannabis is being embraced, essentially because public insight and awareness has significantly increased since 2007, and there has been a shift in public opinion, that has resulted in serious electoral pressure upon politicians to enact cannabis law reform. The drive is coming from the grassroots, it's not being led by politicians, instead governments are being forced to change by the public and ballot box. In an era where the interests and activities of multinational companies and politicians are becoming increasingly enmeshed. An era where democracy seems unresponsive to the needs of the vulnerable, and shows little interest in the protection of the common good, another four decades of inquiries, reports, reviews towards incremental change, would be a grave strategic mistake. The leverage for drug reform will be found, not in trying to persuade politicians or the INCB, UNOT, UNGAS, CND to lead the way on incremental changes which fail to address the underlying fallacies, but rather, by winning over mass public support, by utilizing social media to distribute evidence, developing well-informed community movements, regularly disseminating accurate information, sharing influential case studies and rallying a huge social movement and public outcry that demands political change and transformation. The drug war fallacy spawned by UN have created a global system of propaganda and prohibition. This system needs exposing and ending, it is misguided to imagine it can provide foundations that can be adjusted and reformed incrementally to deliver drug legalization. Human rights and harm reduction must be central in all reform. Despite this encouraging drug law reform development, in respect of cannabis, the attempts towards genuine global drug reform could easily be thwarted. If, as drug reformers, we are not clear in our arguments and strategies for reform, which should be firmly rooted in protecting human rights and promoting harm reduction, cannabis will simply be invited to join the other privileged legal drugs in the drug apartheid.
this could be a positive outcome for big business, who can extend their repertoire and profit from the commercial sale of cannabis, for the state, who can profit from taxes, as well as continue to utilize drug laws as a key control mechanism for stopping, searching, arresting and punishing the poor, indigenous and minority ethnic groups, and the business enterprises spawned from the drug wars, the industrial penal complex, the drug testing industry and the drug treatment industries. In this pivotal period for drug reform, simply privileging cannabis and failing to address the fundamentally flawed system of drug control would amount to colluding with a corrupt system. Some drug reform entrepreneurs may attempt to hail privileging cannabis as an incremental step in the right direction, but the widespread and growing public support for decriminalization, and ultimately the regulation of all drugs, could be dissipated by this tokenistic gesture to invite cannabis to sit around the table of the powerful. While alcohol, tobacco, caffeine and maybe cannabis enjoy privileged status, the scourge, oppression and madness of a drug apartheid, remains an affront to human rights, a system of punishment and control that will continue to haunt this generation and future generations to come, one that will be remembered shamefully in history. The international system of drug control is deeply flawed and damaging to individuals, communities and countries. There is no world drugs problem what we have is a UN-led world drug policy problem. It needs naming, exposing and dismantling. There can be no minor adjustments, or so-called incremental steps to accommodate the status quo, abolition is what is required not compromise. This period of history will be recalled for the needless self-inflicted harm, imposed across the globe by a drug apartheid, in which drug laws and drug policy have caused considerably more harm than the drugs ever could. By Julian Buchanan, Associate Professor, Institute of Criminology, Victoria University of Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand, 7th of March 2015, updated 26th of April 2016.